0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Now, I want to begin today by asking how, if you are familiar with a gentleman named Albert Einstein. All right. The question is, what is Albert Einstein known for? All right, you guys need to go back to school, apparently. <laughs> Likely he's best known for the equation E equals MC squared, which basically, if you don't remember, what that means is that means that energy and matter are the same thing, but they take different forms. Now many of us may also say, well, yeah, you know what, I'm familiar with Albert Einstein. I know he was a physicist. And uh, some of you who have dug deeply into the man's life might also know that uh, he was known for photoelectric effect, for which he won the Nobel Peace Prize, or excuse me, the Nobel Prize in 1921. Now, what you may not be familiar with, what you may not realize, is that Albert Einstein is also known for something very significant when it comes to financial matters. A physicist? Yeah, yeah. You see, it was Albert Einstein who once made a rather bold declaration about investing. Perhaps some of you have heard of it. The German physicist is quoted as saying, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. (laughs) He who understands it, earns it. He who doesn't, pays it. Compound interest is a financial strategy that if you invest daily, you invest consistently, and you have the long haul, the end game in mind, your interest will compound and your money will grow over time. Multiplies, multiplies at an accelerated rate. You see, in spite of what our get it now society suggests, it actually works. So whoever it was that said, amen, amen. (laughs) Here's a quick summary phrase for you. When it comes to finances, time is your friend when you're investing. Impulse is your enemy when it comes to finances. And I might say, well, why are you talking about compound interest and why are you talking about uh, impulse and all of that? Because this morning we are going to be looking at a portion of Scripture that will help us see the significance of time, will help us have the long haul, the end game in mind. It's a portion of God's Word that paints a vivid picture for us, not of the immediate, but of our future. It paints a picture of the end of all things. Are you guys intrigued? That is nowhere near good enough. Are you guys intrigued by that? All right. Well, good. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to dig in after we pray. Let's come before our Father. Heavenly Father, it's our privilege to gather as your people. It is our privilege today to come into your presence And that you might show us who you are. That you might show us that you are on the move. That you are working in the lives of young people. You are working in the lives of adults. And for that, God, we say, amen. We praise you for that. But God, we also stand here today recognizing that our lives are hard. They're difficult. And many times what we want is peace in this moment. We want joy in this moment. We want everything that you say we have, we want it now. God, in spite of that heart posture, would you meet with us today? Would you show us what your word has for us today? Would you give us eyes to see the truth that's found on the pages of your word? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us humble, genuine hearts before you that your spirit might convict us, that your spirit might encourage us, that we might be moved by the reality of your word? Meet with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after a quick one-week break to reflect on the benefits that we have in relationship with our Heavenly Father, we are returning to our sermon series titled, Revelation, All Things New. And as I have mentioned to you numerous times in this series, what we're finding is that Revelation is a book that encourages and inspires worship. And the last time what we looked at in the the book of Revelation, when we opened it together, I'm going to rewind a couple weeks, what we saw was that God gets the final word on sin, he gets the final word on all things evil, he conquers them both. Amen. Now today we get to see another hope filled theme from the vision that God gave to John. Remember, that is what the book of Revelation is. And what we're going to find in this vision is specifically that God is making all things new. God is making all things new. But you might say, well, wait a second, Pastor, what does that actually mean? What does that look like? How does that impact my right here and my right now? Well, I'm glad that you were asking, but I want to point you to how we began the message. Have the end game in mind. Have the end game in mind. Now, as we get ready to turn to God's Word once again... To get the details of John's vision, I want to encourage you to pay close attention to what we're looking at today, because if you were in Christ, it is fantastic news. If you were here today and you'd say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, what we're looking at today is something that should give you a deep sense of hope. Should bring a smile to your face, should put a skip In your step, it should cause you to look upon your future with joy. So let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. Let's turn together to the last book in the New Testament. We're looking at Revelation, and we're going to start with uh, chapter 21 today. Revelation 21. We're just reading those first few verses. Here's what John saw in the vision. From God, He said, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What we just read is described by one theologian as looking into the distances of eternity. Looking into the distances of eternity. It is a world that is quite unlike what you and I see when we look around today. There's the holy and the good and the righteous, and they rule and reign, and they do so in a place that is new and that it is special. But the fact is, this is true. This is tough for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? I mean, when we read this text, it is not easy for us to process. It is difficult for us to get this mental picture of this end game that we we read in the text. Part of the challenge for you and for me is so much of our lives are spent in the immediate. What is happening right here, right now? It's all I see. What can I get now? What am I pursuing in this moment? What am I working towards today? You see, reading about a future reality, even one as glorious as what we have just read, is incredibly tough for most of us. But I want to ask us a question, and it matters for you and I to consider this question today. Why is that? Why is that so hard for us to consider? Could it be? Could it be that we are somehow so satisfied with the picture that we see before us that we're not even thinking about the end game? We're good with our middle-class lifestyle. We are good with what we have right here. I have a new car. I have a great house. I have a boat. I spend time on the lake. I have a cottage up north. Whatever it is, we are good with the right here and the right now. So much so that what happens is we lose sight of what will be in God's kingdom. You know, there's a theological term for this sort of thinking. It is called overrealized realized eschatology. i might say, whoa, over-realized eschatology, rather than just throwing that kind of theological phrase around, let me parse it out for us today. Eschatology first is the study of final things or the study of end things. Got that. Then how can it be over-realized? Well, it's the idea that the best of what God has to offer is already here. I'm already experiencing it right now. It's a worldview that basically says God has come. Nothing bad should happen because he's ruling and he is reigning. What happens when someone buys into this overrealized eschatology is that we fail to recognize and fail to see the now and what is the not yet. Now, here's what I want us to do before we move on. I want us to say that phrase because it is important now and not yet. Yes, Jesus has come. Yes, Jesus is reigning. But the restoration that Christ will bring to all things has not yet occurred. Now and not yet. White Lake family, when we look at Revelation 21. That is why this text is so important for us today. Because if we become so enamored, so stoked, so excited about what we have here and now, what we actually are doing is robbing ourselves of the motivation to persevere. We're robbing ourselves of the desire to persevere for what God has for us for all eternity. So let's dig a little bit deeper into our text today. What we're going to find are three reasons. The gospel gives you and I motivation. It gives you and I motivation in the here and the now. It gives us motivation to persevere. So let's dig in. Let's look at those first few verses again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What a dramatic shift that's taken place from chapter 20 to what we read here in chapter 21. Chapter 20 is filled with final judgment. Evil is wiped away forever. Now while that is certainly great news... We can all agree that's great news. It's not the most warm and inviting vision of our future. So we turn the page, we go to the next chapter. And thankfully, that's what we are confronted with in chapter 21, a hopeful vision of God's future plans for His people. You see this is the final vision that John gives to us as he introduces the last major segment of the Bible. But the question is what are you and I to take from this? What John is explaining, what are we to take from this? May I encourage you to start with this as a thought based on verses 1 and 2 heaven and earth are united. Heaven and earth are united. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. For those of you who love the Old Testament, and we all should, by the way, this may sound familiar to you. If you are familiar with Isaiah at all, listen to these words. For behold, Isaiah writes, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. This is a fulfillment of what we're seeing in the Old Testament. What we see at the beginning of Revelation 21 is a comprehensive, all-encompassing restoration. I want us to pause on that word, restoration? Now, for many of us here, what typically comes to mind when I say restoration, some of you are thinking, well, yeah, I have an old muscle car I'd like to have restored. That Mustang of my neighbor's that sits in his garage, that's pretty cool. That's in need of restoration. I have an old Dodge Challenger, that needs to be restored. Whatever it is that you would like to see restored in the garage, that's a good picture of what we're talking about. Now perhaps some of you have saying, "You know what? I have taken on this older home, and it has become our project to bring restoration. You see, restoration makes things new. It makes things new. That's what God is doing in this space. He's restoring what He's already created. What we just read in verses 1 and 2 is the world's largest and most significant restoration project, period, end of story. It's massive. And what God is doing is He is taking what He has already created in Genesis 1, and He's renovating it. He's restoring the first world that He has created, and He's bringing it together in the new heavens and the new earth. And church, this truth this provides us with our first motivation today to see this new reality god's people must see this new reality what i just said a moment ago might be shocking for some of you you might be thinking wait a second pastor are, are you telling me that god is going to take this broken down world and he's gonna restore it yep That's exactly what I'm saying. If you don't understand, let me tell you, he's already given us a template. He's already given us a template, and that template is Jesus himself. Jesus himself gives us the paradigm. You see, when Jesus was hung in a gruesome and brutal fashion upon the cross, his earthly body died. He did not lose his identity. Let me say that one more time. Jesus, upon the cross, when he died, did not lose his identity. But when he was resurrected, it wasn't an entirely new existence. Jesus' body was restored. And that is what God is doing with the world that he created. He's restoring it for his glory. Before we move on to the second segment of today's text, there's a couple phrases that I want us to hit before before we move on, and some of you might have noticed those on the bottom there, and it says, and the sea, and the sea was no more. What many of us may not realize is that the sea was, and for some folks, is still considered by many to represent the very source of evil. It was the origin of evil. It was the place of the dead. That was the sea. And so when John tells us of the destruction of the sea, it is viewed as a good thing. People understood this as a good thing because the sea was the source of all political and personal and all sorts of evil. It's a bad place. And what John tells us is it's gone. The sea, gone. And then lastly, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the bride. All three of those terms refer to one thing God's people. God's people, the church. Theologian Doug Kelly describes it best. He says, The people of God, from the beginning in the Garden of Eden down to the final person who believes, that's God's church. What are we to do with all this vivid imagery? How does it influence the way you and I live? Like, I got it. That's what's happening in John's vision. Well, I want you to know it should be a huge encouragement for all of us who are here today who are in Christ by faith. You should be encouraged when you hear these words. Because in spite of her many flaws, in spite of her imperfections, God's church is an unfinished beauty. It is a beauty. And we, as believers, are part of her. So this is fantastic news. God loves his church. The Lamb loves his bride. It is a fantastic picture of our future. But this is where I want us to pause. I've done this multiple times throughout this series. I want to pause and I want to do it again. I want to ask you where you stand in your faith today. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sin and believed upon Jesus as your Savior? As Natalie professed, as Jessica professed, as Skylar professed, that they believe in Jesus alone for their salvation. Would you say that about you? I ask that because everything that we're reading about, all of it, All of the vivid imagery that we find in Revelation hinges upon the belief, your belief in Christ. If you trust in Christ as your Savior, the one who died to save you and to save me from our sin, all of John's words detailing the future, giving us a vivid picture of the end game, all of that will be your experience. Not because of what you do. Not because of your religious activities, but because of Christ and what he did upon the cross. Now, if you are not yet a follower of Christ, may I encourage you right here, right now, to consider what we're talking about at a deep, personal level. This isn't about someone else. It is about you and what God wants for you. Repent, believe, and this is your future. Church, these are eternal matters. Now, let's return to the text. Revelation chapter 21. We'll pick it up at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! and making all things new. Do you guys see the vision that John is laying out for us? Are you seeing it? What he's doing is he's showing us a place that is unlike any other place. It's unlike any place. It's different, and it is different in an amazing sort of way because it is a place where God will be with his people. The Almighty will dwell with us. Church, that's the second motivation. That is the second motivation that we find in the gospel, that we, are, that we hear about our new home, that we grab a hold, that believers hear and understand the significance of our new home. And I want to make this very, very clear. This is not just a place where God's people will kind of stand off in a distance like you're in the back of the concert hall just trying to get a glimpse of the artist. No, no, no. God is dwelling with his people. He's not off in the distance. He is present in the entire city. God is with his people. And that's where God's people said, "Amen." amen, amen. Amen. It sounds great, doesn't it? But it also sounds incredibly religious. I want to bring this down on the practical side of things. You say, well, that's great, Pastor. What does that mean? What does it mean practically that that's my eternal home? I'll have complete access with the holiness of God, and that will be enough. That'll be enough for all of us Forever period now some of you are saying okay wait a second will i be eating phenomenal steaks in heaven will i have a chance to golf in heaven what about my favorite hobby here's the reality none of it will matter None of it will matter because you will find your deepest longings in the presence of Almighty God. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Everything in this life that gives you and I fulfillment will be found in God Himself. It's all about Him. It's not about golfing or stakes or whatever it is that we desire. All of the fulfillment that we have will be in Him. You see, this is intriguing. Because it's an intriguing picture of every way that we've seen throughout Scripture that God created us to have a relationship with Him. It started in the Garden of Eden, then it moved to the tabernacle, then it moved to the temple, and now it's in the context of His church. And they're all realized in this new home. Why? Because that's where God dwells with His people. It's beautiful. And if you're in Christ today, that is your future. Now, let's look at the final portion of today's text. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy, and they're true. And he said to me, it is done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. For the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, As for the faithless, as for the the detestable, as for the murderers, as for the sexually immoral and the sorcerers and the idolaters and the all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, John references the words of Christ upon the cross. You remember it? It is finished here in the vision he is confronted with a similar statement it is done remember there is the now and the not yet the it is finished part is the now this this is the not quite yet for us now who's saying these words whose words are we reading it's jesus The one who was declared finished when he ushered in the kingdom, again, that began the now. And what we're examining right here is what we will get to in our future reality. And that's why we say it is not yet here. The Holy One will bring justice. That's what that bottom portion is about. God will bring justice. You see, there's the Alpha and the Omega, and those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. They're the beginning and the end, and that communicates that God created the world in the beginning, and what He is going to do at the end is He's going to restore it. It's going to be beautiful, and this truth helps us see the third and final gospel motivation. For you and I to engage in the here and now, we do that when we receive the promised word. When you and I turn to God's word and we receive his promised word. You see, for the believer, everything that God reveals to us in this passage will come true. All of it. It's an amazing and stunning future. And it's something that if you were in Christ today, I hope that you feel this joy kind of stirring in your heart. There is this hope that you have for what lies ahead because it is true. It's true and it's amazing, but here's the other side of that coin. We're not there yet. John Piper describes life in our fallen world I think, in a powerful and yet honest way. Here's what he says. He says, normal Christianity is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. What we see in this world brings us sorrow. It is the physical pain. It is the emotional grief. It is the spiritual struggles. They are all real, and they are all things that you and I face, yet the believer has hope because of this glorious future. You know, my wife Bonnie, she has a few favorite things in her life, and one of those are items from the company Life is Good. (laughs) You guys have seen the t-shirts, you've seen the coffee mugs, and all sorts of things that encourage people that the life we have is pretty great pretty good have a positive view of things because this life is good but here's what i want christ followers to remember while life is good eternity with god is so much better It is so much better. So don't get overcome with the stuff of life, the trials, the struggles, the pain. Yes, they're real, but they are momentary. The struggle, the sorrow, leads to rejoicing. So White Lake family, let's be mindful of the end game. God is making all things new.